You are listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 43. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Carolina Sueldo on the cost of delaying childbearing. One in four women physicians will experience infertility. This is one cost we hadn't anticipated when we became physicians. Listen to hear more. And if you hate clinic, come join me for Stop Hating Clinic webinar, September 14th at 6 p.m. Central. Go to bosssurgery.com to register. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I have an excellent guest here today. I am so excited to hear everything that she has to say. This is Dr. Carolina Sueldo. So she is a double boarded certified fertility specialist. She's currently in, in Fresno, California. And, you know, she reached out to me so we could share this humongous message that she has, especially as women physicians. There's so many, just so much, I don't know, hard to say baggage, I guess, and, and concern uh, of children in residency and it influences everything. And I'm really excited to hear all that she has to say, because there's so many topics here that are extremely important for women physicians and even people who are not quite physicians yet, because this does influence the people that come into our specialties. And so Dr. Sweldo, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is this is so fun. I'm really excited to be here. And as I was mentioning before we started the recording is female physicians, you know, they really hold a special place for me. And I think it stems from a place of what you were talking about, you know, we already go into medicine with this concept of delayed gratification. And we know that there's going to be a lot of things that are put on hold for our careers. I don't think any of us really understood that that could also mean our families or our family building journey. And so um, that's why I'm really excited to be here today. Super, super important stuff that we're talking about. Um, as far as me, so a little bit about myself, I am originally from Central California. So Fresno, as you mentioned, the Central Valley, um, born and raised here until about the age of 15. And then my family packed everything up and we moved to Argentina. Um, so my parents are both originally from Argentina. All of my extended family lives there. Um, and they were extremely formative years. I actually, I did high school and then I did medical school there. Um, loved it, had, had the most amazing time worked very hard, but also got to play a little bit as well. Um, and then came back to the States for my OB-GYN residency training, um, followed by an REI fellowship. So REI is reproductive endocrinology and infertility, um, which is very, very long-term for fertility specialists. Um, so then I spent three years in Miami as a, at a big private practice there, um, and that was definitely like a lot of on the job learning um, as far as just being in like a big private practice, very busy, high volume um, and Southeast Florida, that population, you know, there's definitely a need for fertility specialists there. Um, during that time, met my now husband. Um, and so we decided to move back to the Central Valley uh, where we've been for about four years now. We have two little boys, um, three years old and almost nine months. So that's been a journey in and of its own. <laughs> Um, that. Yeah. <laughs> so what made you become a fertility specialist? What was it that that led you to, uh, down that path? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's really interesting, because what originally brought me here 
is not why I fell in love with it, um, which is interesting. So just a fun fact, my dad, Dr. Carlos Sweldo, is also a fertility specialist. And growing up, everyone's like, oh, you're going to be just like your dad. And I was like, nope, 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 not doing that, <laughs> not doing that. Like I'm carving my own path, this and that. Um, and I really, I always had uh, a love for sort of, you know, empowering women, you know, uh, reproductive knowledge, women's health, birth control, things, you know, ST, um, STD testing, et cetera. So, so OBGYN was kind of a natural evolution for me. Um, and when I decided on OBGYN, I said, okay, but I'm not doing infertility. I'm not doing that. I'm not following, you know, I, I don't want to be in my father's shadow, et cetera. Um, and then I would say it was probably about six, seven months in, I got exposure to the lab, to the IVF lab and just the incredible work that those embryologists do. Um, it really, I don't know, it was a game changer for me. You know, what, what they were able to do in the lab um, is so special and, and just so different than anything else I had seen in, in the world of medicine. Um, and it really, I got, it got me really excited about infertility. I was like, all right, well, maybe I'll do it, but like, not because of you, dad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I really got excited about the science behind it. So the thought that, you know, research and studies are still changing practice. We're still learning. We're still evolving. It's a relatively young field. If you think about, you know, the first IVF conceptions in the world, we're really in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, and so really it's, it's only been around for about 40 years, if you really think about it. So, um, you know, just, just really interesting, um, specialty. And so I got excited, sort of the sciencey part of me got excited about it, but once I was in it, man, the relationships that you establish with patients, that connection, um, I've been in practice now seven years and I have people when I was a fellow that I still communicate with, um, you know, from when I, my first year as an attending that still tell, you know, they send me their kids pictures and like, it is really a lifelong connection. Um, and just something really, really beautiful. I'm actually getting goosebumps talking about it. Um, it's, you know, to me, that connection, that that special relationship that you develop with the patient, that's really why I fell in love with it. Um, and so, you know, I, I still get kind of to, to nerd out on the medicine and the science, but really I'm passionate and I stay and I stay excited about it because of my connection with the patients. That's amazing. And, you know, we were just talking before we started recording. It's like you actually are probably helping people who may never have been in existence without you and who knows what they're going to do. And the exponential effect of that is just staggering to me. How cool is all that? So crazy. I know. I know. Now, yeah. going to the statistics, though, um, I know that that you're actually on for a different passion of the fact that, you know, we as women physicians, because we delay so much, have some pretty alarming statistics. So why don't you share some of those with us? Absolutely. Um, and and I, unfortunately, I have to say, this is really recent information that we have. This is something that's just now in the last year or two starting to be looked at. Um, we know that in the U.S., the, the general population stats um, report infertility with an incidence of around 10-ish percent. So one in 10 couples, you know, potentially are going to have difficulty conceiving. And that may vary depending on region, depending on age, et cetera. But generally speaking, we talk about sort of 10 to 13 percent of live births are from reproductive technologies. When you think about female physicians, the data, and this was based on over 800 female physicians interviewed, 
one in four women had issues with childbearing. One in four women had difficulty and had to seek out fertility care. And that to me would just, my jaw dropped when I read that. Because if you think about one in four, that's higher than the risk of breast cancer. And we have a whole month dedicated to breast cancer awareness. That is more than, I mean, think of any of the diseases that you as a female physician deal with that has a one in four chance of happening. Um, and so that really is what, what sort of, you know, gave me the push to say, okay, we, we need to start talking about this. We need to start having this conversation, um, you know, every day, all day to anyone who will listen and not starting with faculty, right? Because if you think about it, you know, we're on this journey, this career path. We don't really start thinking about our families until after we're done. This is something that we need to be talking to our med students about. This is something we need to be talking to our residents about. Um, the conversations need to start early because when you read statistics like one in four, man, that that is just unacceptable. It really is. And, you know, there's such a huge um just cultural barrier behind it too. Cause I mean, I would even think before medical students, because so many PA students that I've had or, or other people say, well, I want to be a, a doctor or I want to be a surgeon, but I can't be a parent. I was like, what? No. I mean, lots of people are, well, I can't be a female surgeon. I was like, I've got, I'm in a group of 3000 plus women surgeon mothers. So I was like, you know, there's certainly a lot out there too. So there's still some misconceptions that we could do it in the first place. Um, but I think your message is so critical is that we do need to talk about it because we always think that I'll just have a baby later. Right. Right. And we always think, you know, and even, and, and I, I always say this, the, the lack of education, and, and this is, this is not on the patient, right? This is on the physicians that are taking care of those patients to really spread that message of, you know, oh, I'll just, I'll just do it when I'm done. I'll just think about this when it's over or, you know, that sort of arrival fallacy of, okay, once I'm an attending, I'll have the time. Well, no, guess what? Now you're in a practice or you're taking call or whatnot with your group. So um, it definitely, yeah, I agree. It's definitely conversations that need to start early. And I think breaking down, you you mentioned, you touched upon cultural barriers, like, you know, my, my co, whatever, med student, resident partners, fill in the blank, um, are going to look down on me or they're going to, you know, think less of me for, you know, getting pregnant or taking maternity leave or, you know, any of those things. And, and I think, you know, I think that that just, we need to, we need to shift. I think, I will say, I do think that from when I was a resident until now, I have seen some shift, especially within OBGYN, um, and you can maybe speak to general surgery, but I have seen the shift. I have seen it become more acceptable, but still it was almost like this badge of honor of like, oh, you know, I worked up until my water broke or I woke, I worked up until, you know, my ectopic rupture or whatever, whatever the, the, you know, again, fill in the blank scenario, um, of just putting work above all else. And, and I think that we need to continue to chip away at that and shift that mindset because at the end of the day, physicians are humans too. Yeah. And I think the more that we share our stories that helps, um, yeah. I would know that, you know, I was our associate program director of our surgery residency and uh, we were not allowed to ask, of course, but it didn't mean that I wasn't able to tell. So I looked at him and I was like, in case you have a question, you can and should have children. <laughs> <laughs> and that's beautiful. And I wish we saw more of that with program directors or during the interview process. Um, I, I would love to see that, you know, become embraced and become, because it's very, I mean, one in four, like, I mean, just sit with that for just a minute. Like what else in our life do we have a risk of one in four of? Like that is just, 
you know, crazy numbers to me. And it's not even just the one in four infertility too. I could tell you that with my first pregnancy, um, I was a resident and it's always gonna be a terrible time. You know, first was as a resident, you're going to, you know, annoy somebody. And I was like, well, and then I'm going to become an attending. And I was in the military at the time. I was like, now I'm going to be, you know, delaying a deployment. So I had a child in residency and I had a child in between deployments. Um, and, you know, I knew I was going to make somebody unhappy. So I think first is just accepting that someone is not going to like it. Um, right. <laughs> but I could tell you, like, in addition to this, the one in four, um, my first pregnancy did not seem high risk. But uh, at the same time, I ended up having a crash C-section and I was on call that day. And ironically, OBGYN called me because I was on call and they had a question. Uh, I was I was on the labor and delivery ward by that time. Um <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> no, it's it really funny, actually. Uh, oh, no. but I, I told my program director, like, as soon as I saw that second pink line, I was eight weeks pregnant, and I, and I told my program director, and it was still fell on me to arrange everything. Yes. Um, and it was, and, and there was still this underlying, you know, why are you such a problem? You know, why are you know, like, um, and so I felt it, and I, I didn't care much about it, but I felt it. <laughs> but sure. I worked clinic that day that I was diagnosed having oligohydramnios um, and, you know, still kept working, still kept working. And then the second time they said, okay, you really have to go. I'm like, okay, fine. So I delayed going up there and, <laughs> but there was this underlying thing and I was on call and, yeah. you know, I'd made arrangements, but uh, when they called OBGYNs like, I know you're upstairs, but we have to ask you about this. And so I was like, just, you know, it was a, about a PE. I said, you know, just do BID weight-based Lovenox and call the attending directly. <laughs> and but, I'm shaking my head because I think we all have those experiences, right? Like we all have those scenarios and situations. And I think sharing our stories is super important. Absolutely. Because even though I was, you know, one of the three out of four who was able to have a child, it, it was a crash C-section and the oligohydramnios was most likely because I was not treating the pregnancy the way that it should. And so I think the statistics are probably even more alarming than one in four, quite honestly. Um, right. We all have those, you know, the, the fetal demise or the, you know, the higher risk pregnancies that need to be things like that right. too. But so what are the, um, some of the other things that uh, like facts that you've discovered that, that you didn't know there, or do you think that other people should know? Yeah. So I think, you know, shifting, shifting the, from away from the numbers a little bit, um, the sort of talking about ovarian aging. And, and when I say that term, everyone's like, well, what is that? What are you even talking about? And it's just really trying to impart kind of some baseline facts and some baseline knowledge just to kind of have some triggers and, and some red flags as you're sort of going through the process. So the first thing that I tell women is that we are born with all the eggs we're going to have. So we do not, at least as of today, science has not uh, found a way for us to create new eggs, which is different than men. Men actually do have the germ cells in the testicle to generate new sperm every three months. So their reproductive lifespan is much longer than ours. So we're born with all the eggs we're going to have. We lose those progressively and continually as we age. So from birth until menopause, there is decline. However, the rate of that decline is fairly slow from menarche until about age 35. And so we know that reproductive outcomes, the quality of the eggs, the number of the eggs, et cetera, et cetera, all of that generally, and there are exceptions, of course, but generally speaking, those tend to be fairly stable until age 35. And then after age 35, you begin to see a more real, more progressive and continuous decline year over year. And after age 40, 
that decline becomes much more dramatic. So if you think about 35 to 40, imagine kind of a diagonal line down. And then after 40, imagine that line becomes vertical. So the year on year changes are much more significant. And, you know, I use those benchmarks. It's not like something magical happens on your 35th birthday, right? Like this is all a continuum that we're talking about. But what I'm saying is that we know that up until about age 35, things are okay. So so if you have regular cycles, if you have regular menstruation, um, you know, if, if you have your egg reserve that's, you know, on average, things are going to stay about fairly stable until age 35. So if you know this, then you also know, okay, if I'm not planning to, to maybe start trying to have my family until I'm 38, maybe I want to start thinking about that sooner. So it's really not trying, it's not a scare tactic, but more it's an awareness and an information tactic so that we can be proactive. So in general, female physicians, we are planners. That's what we do. Um, you know, we like to have a game plan. We like to take action. We are problem solvers. And so having this information can then allow you to be proactive and to take the necessary measures to potentially avoid problems down the line. So when we talk about ovarian aging, what we're really talking about is egg quantity and egg quality. And we're talking about sort of that slow and progressive decline doesn't really happen significantly between menarche and 35, but definitely begins to happen between 35 and 40. And then certainly after age 40. Right. And so when should someone start considering what should I do with my eggs? Yeah. So you know, this is a, a, a multifaceted or multi-layered answer because obviously there's the medical aspect, but then there's also like all the other life things, right? Um, so are you single? Do you have a partner? Um, where are you in your training? And how does that pregnancy fit into your life? You mentioned earlier, there's never a good time to have a baby. <laughs> so it's just, it is what it is. And it's going to be so for you outside of medicine for your life plan, like when does that, what does that look like? And when does that happen? And I would, I would extend beyond medicine. You know, there are um, other women who are in other businesses, corporate America, lawyers, I mean, you name it, where there's really never a good time to have a baby. And so thinking about that reproductive journey and what that life planning is going to look like for you and knowing the ovarian aging piece and then taking action based on that. So I would say, generally speaking, if you are worried about your fertility, you should be talking to somebody about it, period, full stop, whether you're 25 or 35. Um, now, as far as taking action on that, that may vary a little bit. And um, one thing, I'll, and I know we're going to get into treatment later, but there are other variables to consider, cost, time of treatment, et cetera. And so you may have to sort of plan that out in your life as, or plan that into your life as well. Um, but I would say any time that you are concerned about your fertility would be a good time to at least have that conversation with your physician. And then the other thing is if you have something that you don't think is normal. So for example, irregular cycles is a classic one, right? I'm not on any form of hormones and I go three, four months without a period. That is definitely not normal. As much as we love not getting our period, if you are a healthy reproductive age female, you should be getting a monthly cycle. Um, so if you're not, that definitely needs to be worked up in and of itself separate from the fertility piece. The other one that I think a lot of times is overlooked is painful periods. 
So if you have really debilitating pain with, with intercourse or with your menses, you're calling out of work or, you know, you're suffering through with the IV pull because you're just in so much pain. Like that is definitely not normal. That definitely warrants investigation for sure. Um, so I would argue that yes, time. Okay. Ideally under the age of 35, you want to be thinking about this, but I think there are other things to consider as well. It's not just the age piece that we're thinking about. Right. And so take me through, like, let's say that I'm, you know, 25 and I'm, you know, in medical school or going into medical school. And I just want to, you know, have some ideas of what's possible. So what does a visit like that look like? Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great question. Um, so we we call that a preconception counseling appointment. Um, and essentially what the what the physician will do is they will go through your history. They'll check for any risk factors in your history that may contribute to future fertility. Um, and then sort of, you know, assuming that all of that checks out, they'll focus in on the testing. And the testing is really geared towards ovarian reserve, which is AKA for egg quantity. So we do have testing available that can assess egg quantity. We do not currently have a test for egg quality. So I wanna make sure the distinction is clear, but we definitely can assess for egg quantity. And ovarian reserve testing is done a couple of different ways. And I think sort of the easiest one is a blood test. It's called AMH or anti-Nullarian hormone. And AMH is a marker of ovarian activity. That's the easiest way to explain it. So the more AMH you have, the better. Kind of general, I'm generalizing, but this is the easiest way to think about it. So generally speaking, an AMH over one is good, less than one, not good. And the good, the nice thing about AMH is it can be checked any time of the cycle. It can be checked if you have an IUD in place or if you're on birth control. So it's, it's hormone independent. Um, so like for an annual visit, you could potentially just have that added on to your routine labs. So they're checking, you know, <clears throat> a CBC or a lipid panel or a thyroid screen. They can just tack on that AMH. I will just qualify that the AMH is not foolproof. So for example, women, you know, like myself, I took birth control for pretty much my entire adolescence and, and adulthood until I was ready to get pregnant. Um, so for chronic OCP use or chronic hormone suppression, the AMH may come back a little falsely low. So if you check it, and it's normal, great. That means it's only going to get better once you come off the pill. But if you check it and it's low, sometimes the physician will have you do what's called a pill holiday. So they'll bring you off of suppression, let your hormones kind of reset a little bit, and then they'll recheck that AMH value to make sure that they're, they're getting an accurate representation. But I think AMH is easy. It's great. It's a blood test that can be thrown in with all your other stuff. Um, and so just talking to your, your physician, whether it's PCP or OBGYN, if they're comfortable ordering, if they're not, you can definitely see a fertility specialist. Preconception counseling is definitely within our wheelhouse and definitely something that you can explore. The other way that we check um, egg reserve is a two hormones. So FSH, follicle stimulating hormone and estradiol. Um, also great markers. Fertility specialists use them every day, all day. The only thing with that one is that you can't have any hormones on board. So you have to be having regular monthly cycles and you have to check them at the beginning while you're bleeding. Um, so it's a blood test as well. While you're bleeding, you would check those two together, the FSH and the estrogen level. And then the third way is actually just doing a vaginal ultrasound in the office with the fertility specialist. So the same day you have your consultation, if appropriate and if indicated, you may have a vaginal ultrasound looking at the ovaries. And I always tell my patients, the ovary is like a chocolate chip cookie. 
Um, so we're looking at how big that cookie is and we're looking at how many chocolate chips are on it. That's kind of the, <laughs> yeah, I just, I think it's an easy visual. Um, so I would say, you know, definitely something to explore today. These days, there's actually a couple home kits that are available where you don't even need to see a doctor. You can actually order online. The kit comes to your home. You do a finger prick test, you mail it in and they have an expert. So they have a, a typically a medical panel that reviews your results and you get a phone call call with those results. Um, so that's even something like for someone who doesn't, let's just say you're a resident or a student or whatnot, you don't have time to go into the office, set that appointment or whatnot. You can just, you know, do that hormone testing at home in, in the comfort of your home. Nice. And how often do you suggest that people do these tests? Is it annually or just whenever you're concerned? That's a great question. So I think um, if you're under the age of 30, I would say just if there is concern and then if things come back abnormal, definitely that needs to be explored. But if they come back normal, there's probably you're probably sort of on track. Right. And so there's probably not a need to recheck on a yearly basis. Um, and then I would say if you're over the age of 30, that's definitely a conversation you want to be having more regularly with your OBGYN or your fertility specialist, because we know that sort of, we have that five-year window until the age of 35. Got it. And so what happens when, if it comes back less than one, so, you know, you've not been on chronic OCPs, you know, this, uh, AMH is less than one. Now what? That's a great question. Thank you so much for asking that. So um, the one takeaway that I definitely want patients to know is that all the literature that we have available actually does not suggest that AMH is a predictor of pregnancy. So AMH is a predictor of egg reserve. So I want to make that distinct. Just because you have a low egg reserve does not mean you are not capable of having a child. There's zero correlation with predicting pregnancy. Okay. However, if you have low egg reserve, that may shift your mindset, right? That may shift your plan. That may say, okay, I was planning to have kids in 10 years. Maybe I need to like revisit that plan and start having that. And I'm not saying you have to do it tomorrow, but I, at least I, I think it's important information to guide you in terms of your decision-making, right? So like when we talk about informed consent for a procedure, the whole point of informed consent is so that the patient can make the best decision possible with the information that they're given. So this is sort of the same concept with the information that you're given you're now allowed to make that decision. Because what I hear from women every day is, I wish I would have known. I wish someone would have told me. I wish I would have been given that option. So had I known, I would have taken different measures. And so the goal of doing those checks or the goal of having that discussion early is to be able to say, okay, if it comes back low, okay, this is what we're dealing with. How am I going to then act with that decision? Perfect. And so let's say that you have like a true concern, like I'm, I'm not in a relationship, you know, I, I do want children one day and I'm not sure when that's going to be on the horizon. And, but I do want to make sure that I give myself the best opportunity in the future to have a child. What, what, what are my options do you think? Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of variables that go into that answer. The biggest one being age. So for my women who are under the age of 35, I strongly encourage them to consider egg freezing. I've done it myself. I'm passionate about it. I hope more women um, do it in the future. And the idea of egg freezing, I'll just kind of give you some historical context. So pre-2010-ish, 2012, um, egg freezing was still considered experimental by the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. And the reason for that was the technique of freezing in the lab. So with slow freezing, which is what we used to do, eggs did not survive well. 
So for example, in women who were diagnosed with cancer, they were going to have to undergo chemo radiation and they wanted to preserve their fertility. We were actually at that time. And remember, this is like early 2000s. This is not that long ago. Um, we were encouraging them to fertilize the eggs with donor sperm and create embryos because we knew the embryos would survive much better than the eggs by themselves. And so to give them a reasonable chance of pregnancy in the future, that was the recommendation. But in that sort of 2010-12 era, the, the technique for freezing changed. We went from slow freezing to what we call vitrification or a fast freeze. And a byproduct of that that was unexpected was that the eggs survived much better. So we now had a survivability of upwards of 85, 90%, which is fantastic compared to what we were doing before. So in 2012, ASRM took away the label of experimental and actually made egg freezing part of the standard of care. So in the really, it's only been in the last 10 years that egg freezing has now become the norm um, and I think it was maybe three or four years ago, egg freezing parties were a thing in cities like New York and L.A. and whatnot. But really, the goal behind all of that was education and awareness that this was now an option. And so the idea is that women would go through a stimulation process, and that typically lasts about a week and a half, so eight to 10 days of stimulation. Um, in the course of those eight to 10 days, that IVF clinic is your best friend because you're going in for several appointments. Um, and then at the, at the end of those eight to 10 days, we plan for the egg extraction or the egg retrieval procedure. Um, that procedure is typically done under a little bit of sedation, so you're not awake for it, and it is typically done vaginally. So we insert the vaginal ultrasound probe. And then using a very fine needle, we puncture through the vaginal wall to reach the ovaries. If we've done our job, the ovaries enlarge from the size of a golf ball to the size of a grapefruit. So they're easily accessible through the vagina. And we extract all the eggs that we can from both ovaries. Um, those are then handed off to the IVF lab. They give us a final count of how many total eggs we were able to get. And then of those eggs, how many mature eggs we were able to get. So the mature eggs are the ones of being uh, capable of being fertilized by sperm in the future. So those are the ones we would ultimately freeze. Perfect. Now, what is the difference between freezing eggs and embryos? Is there a difference and is one better than another or what are the That's great. Thoughts? So for the patient, so for the person going through it, it's exactly the same. So it's the, it's essentially that same two week process. Um, you have the eight to 10 days of stimulation with the monitoring appointments, the egg retrieval procedure. But what happens after that in the lab is where the big difference lies. So for egg freezing, the procedure stops at that point of retrieval. So um, the lab actually has a set number of hours where they check the eggs, they look for those mature eggs and ultimately freeze those. When you wanna freeze embryos, you actually have to create those embryos. So those mature eggs in that process would then be injected with sperm and those embryos are grown in the IVF lab in culture and culture media. And they reach a determined stage called day five or blastocyst stage at which time they are frozen for future use. So as far as the patient experience, there's no difference but there is obviously dramatic differences of what's happening in the, in the lab behind the scenes. As far as which one is better, my answer may not be sort of the, the majority answer. It may not be the most popular answer. Um, generally speaking, from a, from a medical science standpoint, embryos tend to do a little bit better than eggs. So embryos will freeze, you know, survive the freezing typically over 95% of the time. Eggs, you know, I quoted 85, 90%, depending um, on the patient and sort of different circumstances. So there is a little bit better survivability with embryos. However, for me, as a woman, maybe, I guess, um, <laughs> I always, always encourage patients to freeze eggs. 
whether they're single, married, in a relationship, not in a relationship, etc., because eggs only have one owner, and that is you. So when it comes time to use those eggs, you can you you can do whatever you want with them. You do not need anyone else's permission. Once you have embryos formed, there are now two owners. So even though at the time of freezing, you guys may have agreed upon what the disposition of those embryos will be, that is not a binding decision. So you never know what can happen in four or five, 10 years from now. And potentially those embryos then go into dispute. And there's been a couple of high profile cases um, where embryos have you know, it's gone to court about what's going to be done with those embryos. And I think everyone might have read about Sofia Vergara and her ex, Nick Loeb. So that's one high profile case. I think Sherry Shepard was another one. Um, so in the setting of being able to, of having the option now today, 2022, to freeze eggs versus embryos, me personally, Dr. Sweldo, I'm always going to recommend eggs over embryos, despite that little bit of difference in survivability. Yeah, and I, I didn't realize that there was such a significant difference in the survivability of eggs now versus you know pre two thousand ten. So yeah, you know, certainly that that may a lot of people may not be aware of that part as well. Yeah, definitely, because before it wasn't necessarily something that we could, um, you know, that we could really offer as standard practice, or if we did offer it, it was typically creating those embryos with donor sperm. So really, vitrification was a game changer for how we offer care um, in, in infertility. And, you know, of course, we talked about this before we recorded, like, what on earth are we going to do with IVF in the age of a post Roe v. Wade world? Uh, and, and you and I, neither one of us have the answers to that, that's for sure. But yeah. um, what are some of the, the, the facts to consider? Yeah, that I'm glad you brought it up. So I, I will just qualify my answer. Um, so, so since June 24th, I have probably been fielding questions about this almost on the daily. Um, and, you know, initially people sort of isolated the Roe v. Wade decision to abortion care specifically. Um, but really what people need to understand that it is, it extends way beyond that to the full scope of reproductive rights. Um, and what we see is that, you know, people may have heard of trigger bans. Those are abortion bans that were um, predetermined. And so that in the effect that Roe v. Wade was overturned, those would then go into effect. Um, but behind those trigger abortion bans, there are also something that we call personhood bills. And there's actually several of them that are currently on the docket. Um, I believe Tennessee is one of them where you are, but I know for sure Pennsylvania um, and Indiana were actually both actively being discussed in the most recent state legislative sessions in those states. Personhood bills basically are the state's way of defining when life begins. And based on that determination is what happens to those or what is, um, yeah, what happens to those embryos and or fetuses, depending on when life begins. So personhood embryos sort of operate under the assumption that life begins at fertilization. And so the fertilized egg, aka the embryo, in the IVF lab is already considered a live being which means that you would treat it the same way that you would treat any other human. So, so theoretically, if that were to be the case, those embryos would have to be implanted into a womb. They could not be discarded. They could not be frozen. They could not be biopsied for genetic testing because they are considered human life. 
that would then make the clinicians or the IVF lab, if they were to do those things, potentially prosecutable. And it is considered criminal prosecution, not civil. So I will I will qualify that by saying, you know, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, IVF came around in a post Roe v. Wade world. So this is really uncharted territory for us as reproductive specialists. And really a lot of it is going to be as the, sort of the, the following sort of year or two years evolves, how these decisions come about in a court of law is really gonna be the precedent moving forward of how IVF can be practiced in that state. So I think there's a lot of unknowns, but I definitely think it's important for women who are considering egg freezing or who are going through infertility treatment for them to be aware that this is out there, this is happening and that this is gonna impact them. And for myself, you know, I practice in California. So a lot of my people are like, oh, well, that's not gonna affect me. No, no, you best believe it's gonna impact you because if you're visiting one of those states and you're in treatment, you could be impacted. And the other thing is that we're gonna see an influx of care, those who can afford it, right? Cause now it becomes an access issue. Those who can afford it are gonna take their treatment to states where the laws are more favorable. So you're going to see a saturation of an already overwhelmed system. So um, definitely, you know, lots of changes coming, I think, in the next year to two years um, as this all plays out in real time. Well, and I completely agree with you. Um, and, you know, you and I obviously don't have the answers, but I think sharing people what they should be looking for, which is these yeah. things are determined by the states. And, yeah. you know, what this overturning of uh, Roe v. Wade has done is kick it back to the states. Yep. So, um, and, and we're all going to be influenced by this in each of the states that we're in, depending on whatever those state laws are. Uh, and so certainly, you know, adding another layer of complexity to this. Uh, An already difficult journey, for sure. For sure. Exactly. This interview is so helpful for so many women here. And, you know, again, just kind of going back to this whole mission that you have of supporting women, but, you know, also supporting the the potential people that, you know, wouldn't exist unless, you know, you were there helping. So, I mean, really just what a remarkable uh, career path that you have chosen. And I really, really appreciate all of that you shared with us that so critical beyond just the, the scope of this is we all are responsible for changing the culture of all this. And, you know, knowing that one in four women physicians are going to be affected by infertility, I think it's all on us to support the women in their journey of of pregnancy and having children. And yes, people are going to be upset and yes, they're going to make comments and, but that's okay. I think that, that we need to be the voice that supports them in their journey as often as possible. So to support them so they can have the, the life that they want as well. Amen. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Absolutely. All right. Well, Dr. Spoto, thank you so much for joining me today. Any other thoughts you would have or any other last um, remarks? Thank you so much for having me. This has been awesome. Hopefully it's been helpful to your audience. Um, I think that the one big takeaway I would say is just advocate for yourself, you know, being a self-advocate, informing and educating yourself. Um, certainly for me, female physicians have a soft spot. So I'm always available if you want to find me on social media and, you know, DM me or whatnot. I'm always happy to, to chime in and help where I can. And where can they find you? Oh, so um, so as I mentioned, so social media, Facebook, Instagram, just Dr. Carolina Sweldo. Um, and then I also have a YouTube channel if they want to go there for, for more information. Right. And those links um, will be on the show notes. And so be on the lookout for that as well. I really appreciate you coming and joining us today. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 
For more information about the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.